chapter 8, The Rules. The first rule of Christian culture, don't talk about Christian culture, particularly its rules. When I was a kid, there sure were a lot of rules. And we had wanted there to be, most of us. Otherwise, who knew what might have happened? Anyone might have just done anything at all. Man, would we have sinned. It all seemed very normal to us. It was all we knew. Mary writes, My awareness of exactly how many rules we were living under grew over time, as I learned how many were not in the Bible, per se, but were added by my parents or the older brothers or whoever. The more I learned to look at things in context, the more the rules that were written based on a single phrase in one verse started to fall apart, too. Carol says, I was not particularly aware that there were a lot, because I had no other quantity with which to compare living in such an insular environment. I just accepted the whole shebang, hook, line, and sinker. Kids do tend to, don't they? We'd all had a very deep fear of chaos, so we had rules. But they'd not been written down at all. Even so, they had all somehow been passed down to us. We had known exactly what had been expected of us. We had known exactly what earned brownie points and what looked bad. And we hadn't had a clue exactly how we knew all of this. It was like magic. We would never have thought to call it indoctrination, though we certainly hoped that meeting was putting doctrine into us. So in my 20s, I wanted to define exactly what all of these expectations were and work out what was behind them. I had programming, and I didn't even know what half of it was. And I wasn't content simply obeying without understanding. I was equally not content with rebelling randomly and unthinkingly. I wanted to figure it all out, to take a long, hard look at what the rules were, what was being done to us when we didn't follow them, and stuff like that. So I started to focus on our culture and the many ways in which it constricted and deformed what otherwise would have been the natural shape of our lives. And I started to look for superstition and irrational inconsistency in all of their forms. This made a lot of adults very annoyed with me. Because in most cases, they'd not had a look at much of this themselves. Rules were things it was both gauche and immature to mention, but also fatal to break. They were superstitious about thinking about their Christian practice. I've had more than one person claim outright that absolutely nothing that Christians do is ever done out of superstition. Scriptural Christianity is what we do. Superstition is what uncivilized savage cultures and flaky New Age people alike do, not us. Ours was a system that mainly worked with, you know, and we really did. But how did we know? How do you bind entire generations of human beings to strict cultural structures without ever actually overtly admitting what all those limits ever really are? It was when I was an adolescent, feeling the full weight of adult suspicion and distrust as to our youthful energy and enthusiasm on me, that I first started to really notice all of the inconsistencies, both in practice and logic, as to these rules, unwritten and to a large degree undiscussed. And the adult reaction to my searching was generally, I'm, I'm sure, sure you think, think you're smart seeing inconsistencies. Thing is, we've all seen those and backed away because what's the alternative? The system has to work. And so we make it work. And you don't make a system work by taking it all to pieces like that. Knuckle under and just get along. Stop making waves or go find another system. And no system is perfect, you know. But I didn't listen. Some of the rules were obviously nothing more than North American tradition, neo-Puritanism, 
prohibitions against whatever was entertaining or new, mainly. There had been huge resistance to the radio and the telephone when they were new, when they were fads mainly embraced by the young. Even in the 1980s, the fact that the radio could be used to make kids aware of pop music was upsetting to parents. Our parents didn't want us using radios to listen to pop or rock music. Our home had no television either, of course, and we weren't allowed to go to the movies. Without the internet, of course, this effectively denied us the decade in which we were young, raised us to be pop culture deaf, kept us from being able to understand much of anything the kids our age were saying around us. Brethren reading early versions of this book have complained of missing the Bugs Bunny, comic book, Star Wars, pop music, and other such references. Whoops! Just like some other people, haven't heard enough King James Version to follow everything. Even the TWist of my proofreaders had trouble knowing what to correct. Sometimes they didn't remember KJV words like divers, for diverse, and and let, a hindrance, enough to see that I was having fun with them. It would be simple to look at this attitude we grow up under as merely a kind of conservatism or technophobia or a view that all that stuff's bad for kids anyway and rots the brain, but I think it went deeper than that. Songs, I noted, were sort of okay until they got too danceable or expressed too much emotion. Black people made music with far too much of all that in it. Too much dance, too much aggression, too much energy, too much sex. Christian songs were criticized in the Victorian and Edwardian eras if the tune was too jingly or commercial, if it sounded catchy, like something someone might hear in a dance hall or slap on the old gramophone. If I tried out music that was thought of as Christian and it was catchy, hooky, or danceable, my mother would say, that's, that's a, a bit, bit jazzy, jazzy, though. It was too fun for her comfort. No one ever complained if they were too cheesy and plastic. But jazzy? Several generations after the jazz age, but still feeling that jazzy was a problem. Might make you want to move your body. Might have been a bit of a race thing still lingering on into the 1980s. Brethren kids weren't supposed to listen to Pink Floyd or The Who, but ones who were listening to Michael Jackson or Run DMC, the Miami Vice soundtrack, forget about it. So jazzy. There was a very deep-seated feeling that if you allowed anything too fun in your life, then meeting, the Bible, and prayer would fade out of the picture, having been displaced by the fun. The idea was that Christianity could not compete with pleasurable things, and so it was important to deprive children of said pleasurable things, to give meeting a fighting chance. My mother would shake her head if I'd been reading Batman comics at someone's house, I wasn't allowed to have comics of my own because they were garish. And she'd say, how are you going to take an interest at Bible reading if you've been reading comics? How are you going to keep the kids down on the farm once they've seen Gotham and Metropolis? I can tell you this. When you're a kid and you want more than anything else to read a Batman comic or go to the movie theater and see Star Wars or have a television black and white would do just fine and sit down and watch Knight Rider or the A-Team like the other kids and your parents' emotional response to your liking this stuff is akin to seeing you dancing in the woods by moonlight with the devil, it is pretty much impossible to respect this or them because you aren't superstitiously terrified of Ghostbusters. You just aren't. So if they are, lols. It just makes your parents look like what they probably are, superstitiously fearful control freaks who feel that the greatest threat to their child's faith is pop culture. In retrospect, these TV shows and comic books were not high art, but the idea that they were going to somehow imperil my soul or corrupt my morals seems laughable now, because it was, and all the kids knew it. 
I think if my parents had said, you like Batman? I'd rather you read this. Or, you like ABBA, Queen, The Beatles, John Denver, and Neil Diamond? I'd rather you listen to this. It would have been quite different. But there was just, you want what? No, it's not okay. Why would you want that? Because it wasn't just that one could contrive reasons for finding comic books or crappy 80s action shows morally unsound. It was simpler than that. It really was the fun thing. Fun itself was the sore point. Pleasure, in general. Loving the things of this world was a form of betraying Jesus. When I read the Bible now and see words like delight or joy or desires or pleasures, I have to remind myself that the spin being put on those phrases, the tone of voice in which those words were read when I was a kid, was pretty bizarre. I have to remember that the Bible, just because it uses the word pleasure or desire, isn't saying those things are bad. But I'm trained to hear pleasure or desire and picture purest, preening, giggling evil. Tim Curry in Makeup, Whores and Cocaine, Comics. You sure can read Bible portions with words like desire in just such a voice as to suggest that desire, desire. itself is sinful, as is pleasure, pleasure joy, joy, and delight. delight. It's easy. You just read those words with a bit of an oily sneer, or a bit of dire suspicion, or funereal disapproval, and you can get across the idea that the Bible is saying that fun is bad. Despite the fact that the wording is differentiating sinful desires from other desires, and sinful pleasures with wholesome ones. You can make any desires or pleasures sound selfish, shameful, and dirty with your voice. And start young, with kids you want to teach to flinch away in suspicion from the thought of pleasure of any kind. So this distrust of pleasure would show up over and over back in the day. If you showed too much pleasure in anything, someone would very likely have a word to your conscience. They might let you know that it was important not to make an idol of hockey or music or adventure books or whatever it was you really liked, because they'd seen you getting lost in the experience of enjoying the thing, dancing in the woods in the moonlight, having sold your soul to Marvel Comics, the Bengals, Nintendo, or the World Wrestling Federation. They knew it was becoming a problem for you, so they were just kindly warning you that you were getting lost in the thing, that your life was showing signs of heading for shipwreck, that your choices were betraying your lack of wisdom and spirituality, your lack of devotedness to Jesus, because Jesus wouldn't play Nintendo, so why should we? Hockey either. Was right out then. The thing is, although I have never derived much enjoyment from hockey, I believe that the guys who were into it were into it for good reasons. It gave them a time and place, activity and group, which all worked together to allow them to throw themselves wholly into something, to get behind it and play full out. I think they were deeply enjoying each other's company. I think they relaxed into the awareness that they were, for once, being permitted to love something. That they'd gotten somewhere where they were finally safe from someone saying they were doing something wrong. They were free while they played. But then people would step up sometimes from among their very ranks to warn of hockey worship, to suggest they were making an idol of something because they enjoyed it, to suggest that actually, rather than fun, they were engaged in a wrong choice of some kind. Melody writes, I recall believing that if I made a wrong choice, that would somehow wreck the rest of my life and that God would no longer love me. Louisa adds, The rules were enforced by coldness, shunning, a look of steel, or in some cases, direct actual words of rebuke, 
and knowing you would be talked about negatively. Certain personalities were more prone to this, as certain personalities were more prone to be rule breakers. Mary writes, The rules were enforced by my parents in the occasional letter from an older brethren woman. I probably exerted pressure on others to follow the rules some in preteen years, but don't remember any specific examples. Ruth says, The unwritten rules were in the very air we breathed. I guess we were made aware of them in two ways. The first was not so much in what was said to us as in what was carefully not said. Incomplete sentences, vague hints, disapproving looks, passive-aggressive statements at the dinner table. The second way was worse for a sensitive person like me than being flogged. It was being lovingly taken aside and either rebuked or exhorted or warned or cautioned out of love, depending on the severity of the situation, by people who hadn't taken time and effort to invest in a relationship with you, to get to know you and what made you tick and what you thought and felt. Just the correction machine at work. The common thread of the rules was that everything said and done had to be edifying, profitable, honoring to the Lord, being a good testimony. We couldn't ever go over the top and laugh too hard or enjoy a book or a game too much or sing too lustily. We were always on eggshells, terrified of offending someone. Because if you were big enough in the meeting to get offended, you were the person with the real power. You could bend anyone to your will by being offended. We were made aware of the rules by watching important brethren get offended by things other unfortunate said or did, and we thanked our lucky stars when we weren't the ones who caused that and could avoid that pitfall ourselves. Like Ruth, I noticed pretty young that having power seemed to go with being offended by more stuff than lesser Christians, kind of a princess in the pea form of piety, as opposed to the workable, industrial-grade stuff that Jesus and Paul had. The ever-growing list of rules helped ease this extremely tender set of sensibilities they contrived. Myself, I mainly just wanted nerdy stuff, story stuff. Doctor Who, Star Trek, The X-Men, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, stuff that let me explore a world of imagination. And oddly, the Bible was presented to me as harsh reality, the furthest thing from interesting stories that would make me picture memorable things as possible. So the rules that stung for me were the ones that took away the TV and comic books, kept me out of the movie theater, barred me from pop music, and limited which novels I could read. I think the very idea that reading a Batman comic was somehow supplanting the activity of reading the Bible is actually pretty insulting to the Bible. That the two are seen as even being in the same ballpark is quite something. As if all reading is kind of all the same, no matter if done for edification or entertainment. To suggest you could make an idol of Batman once again suggests that a fictional character can compete with God for worship, for actual non-fictional kids to turn to in times of doubt and trouble, to provide divine insight and ancient wisdom. In the Old Testament, the whole idol thing was pretty clear. If you started praying to Baal, if you built an altar to Moloch, you'd literally replace God. I can no longer take seriously the idea that you are becoming an idolater simply by giving some time to Spider-Man comics, which perhaps you could have given to the Lord in reading the Bible, or by enjoying soccer a whole lot when you perhaps should have been enjoying praying to God. There's more to idolatry than just use of your time. Idolatry means you replace the function of the one with the other. 
I have never prayed to Batman, no matter what was happening. I have never looked to Spider-Man for real answers in my life, nor trusted in Yoda to save my soul from hellfire, or even to make sure pay my bills I could. And I think that's what idolatry would be. Sticking something where God belongs, in my spirit and life, not just in my schedule. Batman and Spider-Man are entertainment. God and the Bible aren't just entertainment. So I don't think we were in danger of making idols of Spider-Man, pop music, and hockey of entertainment. I sure think you can make an idol of your religious church system, though, of your sanitized, censored lifestyle, of your uniquely correct doctrine. I think you can make an idol of anything that supposedly does what God wants to do for you. I think you can certainly do like the Pharisees and make an idol of your reputation, your church status, your rules. I think you can supplant the Holy Spirit and replace him with legalistic Bible study. The rules we cling to and punish others for not taking seriously tell us an awful lot about who we are and who we think God is. Writing the Unwritten Rules My culture was all about limits, a recommended image and lifestyle with modes of speech characterized by highly specialized jargon, bland fashion choices and muted behavior, that kind of thing. We'd built an entire culture of all that. And no one would admit that any of it existed, really, that it was something we all bore the weight of, that it deformed the shape of our growing lives. Nope, it was just God's will, and certainly nothing we'd made, and it wasn't written down anywhere, because, of course, Christians didn't have to follow rules. So why were there so many, and how did ours have so much power over us? Jake grew up going to much more mainstream churches than I did, but he still says, There were a lot of unwritten rules in my home, but not necessarily in my church. They could have been in my church, but I credit my parents with feeding those rules to me primarily. How aware was I of it? Not very much until I was a teenager and started to question things and hear things from other Christians, read things, things like that. I was made aware of them as I began to question things and grow up to be confident in Jesus for myself, not just being wholly validated by my parents' approval. What strung together all of these unwritten rules was fear. Same here. Fear of seeming less Christian. Fear of jeering and snideness in church social settings. Fear of shaming the family. I believe many of us were in religion for the being right and also for the limits and the control. Control was very important. Many of us are just kind of like that. Mary writes, The feeling of control is very important to me, though I hate that it is. I'm learning to let it slide in many aspects, and the more I do, the more I enjoy not having it. When the feeling of my car spinning out of control, literally, was inexplicably joyful to me, I knew that the value I placed on control was very misplaced. I view the loss of control as sin if it leads to debauchery, I guess, or violence directed at others, but mostly no. I did feel that way, though, strongly, for years. Control was to be worshipped and put on a pedestal. Virtuous and good and all that. Laura, from a TW group, says, I wasn't allowed earrings as a kid, or makeup, or pants, or cutting my hair, or shaving my legs, or playing volleyball on the high school team, or acting in a play, or joining California Scholarship Federation, or dating boys, or getting scholarships, or watching TV, or listening to anything other than classical or dirge-like Christian music, or reading novels, or going to Awana, or Girl Scouts, Going to the movies was right out. Oh, and no Christmas. I felt very keenly that my life was in the control of heedless others, 
a blind system, actually, more than specific people. Once we'd had the first division in my 20s and most people were gone, I was very aware that I was still under this bondage. I felt like I really needed to write it all down and see if I could get the men in power to admit that all these rules really were the ones we were expected to follow. Because I was following them, all right, so I wanted someone to admit to them. And that when we didn't follow them fairly closely, we were socially punished, losing any status in the group, shaming our parents, and having gloom and doom predicted as a direct result of our self-indulgent folly. As published in a previous work, here's what I sent to 25 of the contact names in North American TW assemblies in the U.S. and Canada. I got seven responses. June 25, 1995. Dear Brother So-and-So, Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry to be sending you a form letter, but I'm sending out more than one of these and have limited time for correspondence. I am currently trying to define the exercises of the older-than-myself and more prominent brethren amongst us regarding general Christian comportment. I look, of course, to the Lord for my own exercises, but I'm also interested in your personal exercises as to how a godly person might live. I have enclosed an outline which puts into words my understanding of the general exercise of my older brethren, at least as far as I've been able to ascertain from listening to their ministry. I would be simply interested to hear how much in agreement you find yourself with the wording, content, and spirit of the outline itself. The general lack of understanding, harmony, and communion of spirit between the younger generation and the older ones, at least in my area, has prompted me to write this rather odd letter. It could be, perhaps, a step on the road to increased understanding of one another's concerns and exercises. Satan would have us keeping our distances from each other, left staring over our shoulders in distrust and confusion at what each thinks the other is up to. Maybe this kind of thing could help with all that. Feel free to comment as far outside the boundaries of this outline as you wish. What, for example, are your biggest concerns, fears, annoyances, and areas of confusion as to the practical lives of your younger brethren? Being specific and giving examples here would be vital to the discussion. Listing the verses you base your exercise upon is, of course, often a good idea, but your own interpretation, understanding, and specific use of them is what will make this a personal understanding of each other. If you find yourself uncomfortable or unhappy with this whole mode of thought, feel free to send a letter explaining this, or feel free to send nothing at all. I have no desire to change anyone else's exercises, because I view them as personal, so I will appreciate any differences in understanding to be handled in a gracious spirit or long-suffering patience, rather than anything which could be construed as argumentative. I want to know how you feel, so as to understand it firsthand. You are, of course, free before God to feel how you wish. The judge of all the earth knows the rights and wrongs of everything. I wish merely to understand my older brethren. Feel free to pass this on to anyone who might wish to respond to it in any way whatsoever. Yours and him, Mike Moore. General Outline of Lifestyle Guidelines for Godly Young People My Older Brethren's Exercises As Near As I Understand Them A Christian does not indulge the flesh in worldly entertainment. This includes television, movies, music concerts, theatrical productions, recordings of worldly music, or anything else which is merely to entertain and does not edify. Sporting activities and board games are permissible, provided they are engaged in with proper supervision and in the company of fellow believers. 
A Christian does not indulge in filthy habits such as smoking, nor does he partake of any food or drink which contains or contained alcohol, except, of course, within the context of the breaking of bread on Lord's Day morning. Social events are for Christian fellowship and mutual encouragement of fellow believers. In the case of events for the young people, activities should be supervised by a responsible adult, preferably married, and should include the elements of prayer and Bible reading. All assembly meetings are to be attended except in the case of extreme illness or unbreakable obligations of some nature. This is so that we will be kept and so that our feet will be washed and our doctrine tested. Our attendance will serve to sanctify us while our attention will serve to edify us. Even if one is tired or preoccupied, attending is still a very worthwhile endeavor in itself as the Lord is there and wants to see us there as well. A Christian's dress and deportment should make him instantly recognizable, standing out as a testimony in this wicked world. One's dress should not be gaudy, flamboyant, immodest, or reflect this world's fashions or rebellious nature, neither should it serve to draw attention to oneself except as a Christian testimony. A Christian should be neat, tidy, pleasant, friendly, polite, and respectable-looking. A Christian girl obeys the scriptural exhortation given that she not wear jewelry or men's apparel. Her dress is to be plain and modest and should not be calculated to entice young men physically. Shorts and pants, therefore, should be worn only in situations where her everyday woman's apparel would compromise her modesty even more than the wearing of the men's apparel. Her hair should be worn long, at least to the shoulders, just as the man's should be worn short, off the ears and collar. A woman is to wear a suitable head covering when praying or reading of God's word or singing of hymns is taking place. It shows a proper spirit of submission to her place that she wear her head covering before entering and until leaving the meeting hall. The first day of the week is to be set aside from the rest as the Lord's Day. It is not for our work or entertainment, and therefore no games or sports should be played, nor work done, if at all possible. There are enough meetings on that day to fill the time up adequately, and the time in between them should be spent in quiet meditation and subdued Christian fellowship. The mood of the remembrance of the Lord's death should characterize the entire day, if not the whole week. A Christian's time should be divided between activities which are absolutely necessary for day-to-day -day living and those which are for spiritual edification, for example, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, and activities related to evangelism. A Christian should go through each day prepared at each moment to support the idea that what he is doing is what he feels is the Lord's will for him at that time, and not merely his own idea. He may well be interrupted in it by the Lord's return for us and need to give just such an account. This world, as well as those Christians more infected by its thinking, is sure to criticize us. We should listen only to the Lord and those older Christians who we see going on well for Him and who are more experienced than we are, ignoring the rest, seeing it for the persecution that it is. True exhortation can be recognized by its source, for example, those who take an active role in meeting affairs or are concerned with them, and those who are older and farther down the road than we are. Exhortations from these older brethren should be taken as if the Lord himself were speaking to us, because no doubt that is exactly what is happening. A wise Christian believes the teachings of these men and understands that though he might not have as deep an understanding of doctrine as they and may find some of it confusing, he needs only to recognize their faithfulness over the years to know that they are to be trusted to be right. 
when it comes down to a question of whether they or I am right, I should certainly be put in the place of death where I belong. I should always esteem all my brethren gathered with me to be greater than myself, and remember to take that lowly place always. A good rule of thumb concerning doctrine is, if it's new, it isn't true, and if it's true, then it isn't new. If I remember this little phrase, I will not lay hold on doctrines that are new to me and which I haven't heard before. There are many new things coming in amongst us, and we have to fight them. We need to hold fast the old landmarks, and we have no need of going into books which are not part of the collected ministry of reputable departed writers which have been handed down to us. Gospel work is a sadly ignored part of Christian living today. It is mostly being left up to a faithful few who distribute silent messengers to the neighborhood, or in some cases, many of the third world nations, when we should all be an active part of it. Satan would have much less success leading the young after worldly enticements if more of their time was filled up with gospel work. Self is our biggest enemy and needs to be mortified daily. We either please ourself in this world or we please God at meetings. One can't do both. Jesus first, others next, and yourself last makes J-O-Y a formula which always works. If we live any other way, we will find ourselves not interested in the meeting, and soon we'll be out in this world, which is no place for a Christian to find himself. I never lose the old nature, and my battles with it will only end in glory. But if I fight it and starve it, it will not be able to gain victory over me today. This is why it is so important to start each day off with Bible reading and prayer. The needs of the spirit should be met before the needs of the body. The battle with the old nature starts as soon as I wake, so I need to start fighting from the moment I open my eyes. The seven responses to this set of written rules were extremely consistent. We are Christians. We do not have to follow rules. Of course, these are some very wise rules. Nice job on them, by the way. And if we actually broke any of them, we certainly could not expect anyone to take our Christianity very seriously, nor the Lord to bless us in our lives. And they certainly do describe a very lovely Christian testimony. But actually writing them down? That was taking things a bit too far. It's not how brethren folks live. We live in the unwritten, the unspoken, the deniable. Nice work, though. I think standing outside our own culture even far enough as to codify what was expected of us was beyond most people, a sign that I was treading very dangerously. If you take a direct look at something you do every day, it might look silly. You might get too much insight and see through stuff you didn't want to see through, stuff you needed to treat as if it were solid as a brick wall. That's why, I think, that almost everyone who is of much use to God in the Bible, right up to and including the Lord himself, was an outsider. Looking at the culture, as if from the outside of it, and as a result, getting pushed outside of it and crucified and buried there. My experience of brethren adolescence in recent times is a bit troubling. Seems like in many cases, if you take the rules out of the team, there's nothing much left. The socializing cultural limits were the point, it seems, in far too many cases. It's almost like our Christianity was really mostly those rules, the other forms of the lifestyle, and our lives were nothing more than saying yes to that little new nature sitting on our right shoulder with the wings and halo, and no to the old nature we really kind of were deep down. In our hearts, we lived and felt and viewed ourselves as quite unredeemed by the blood of Christ. 
devil on your Christian shoulder. In those old comics, there's always your main character needing to make a decision. He is tempted to not do the right thing. And while he's thinking about it, there's a tiny devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other. The little devil tells him to do exciting, fun things he wants to do but maybe shouldn't, and the tiny angel tells him not to do those things and offers no better things to do normally. The angel is Nancy Reagan. Just say no. Huckleberry Finn chooses hell. I think I first encountered this angel versus devil dichotomy when reading The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn at perhaps age 10. It still amazes me that Mark Twain was always viewed as such wholesome reading for children. Mark Twain was a very subversive guy with a dubious lifestyle. But instead of viewing him as a reprobate, adults seem to think of Twain and his characters as lovable scamps. In Huck Finn, Huck talks about the angel on the one shoulder trying to make him go to church and school, and the devil on the other encouraging him to skip school and go swimming. The devil is the advocate of fun. The angel is the advocate of appearing decent to other people, having a good reputation, something Samuel Mark Twain Clemens had certainly never been burdened with himself. Huck decides in the end that praying doesn't work, because he tried it once. He prayed for fishing line and found some sure enough, but then there were no hooks. And what good is fishing line tout airy hooks? So he prays for those and done got area one. So Huck decides prayer doesn't work. Well, he admits, it works for the clearly Pharisee figures in his life. And for their part, when Huck tells them it didn't work for him, they laugh at the idea that prayer works to get you the desires of your own heart. They explain that prayer works to help you be a good example to others of how a pious person should be. It helps keep you from sinning, so you can be a good example and lead others to live more like you. Praying's not going to get you fish hooks. Praying's going to help you not be tempted to go fishing in the first place when there's scripture memorizing to be done. Conclusion, God only listens to Pharisees, and who wants to be one of those? But then, Huck gets into an ethical dilemma. He is caught between the Pharisees on the one hand, and on the other hand, his father, who is trying to ensure that Huck turns out just like he has. Huck's paw is everything the Pharisees are trying to keep Huck from becoming. He is violent, dishonest, and an alcoholic. The unmarried Miss Watson, though, meddles in everyone's business, smacking them down if they don't seem decent enough by her spinster standards. That's really all she's mentioned doing in the book. Huck's pa and Miss Watson are both horrible people, and so Huck has to go his own third way. And when things come to a head, it's all about slavery. Huck is friends with Jim, the escaped slave, but when his Pharisee-trained conscience starts to get the better of him, he is convicted of the feeling that in helping Jim flee, he is stealing from decent folk like the Widow Douglas, who'd been offered $800 for Jim. Uppity Negroes going around free was wrong, his culture had taught him. Stealing is wrong, his culture had taught him. Slaves belonged to the people who'd paid for them, his culture had taught him. So helping runaway slaves was wrong. Rather like we'd view stealing someone's car or turning someone's prized stallion free. And so Huck decides, rather than go to hell for stealing Jim, to write a note reporting where Jim, the lost goods, is because it's the right thing to do, taking the side of the angel on his shoulder. But once the note is written, Huck follows his heart, goes against his conscience, and tears up the note, deciding to risk going to hell so Jim can remain free. 
I remember feeling vaguely uncomfortable about that whole passage when I was a kid. It rang a bit too familiar, and I was rather convinced I'd lack Huck's courage. A Variation on the Theme Besides Huckleberry Finn, many newspaper daily comic strips and Warner Brothers and Disney cartoons featured that devil-on-one-shoulder-angel-on-the-other scenario as well. But for folks like us, it was a bit different. As far as we can tell, there was just the one thing, an angel sitting on our shoulder telling us not to do any of the exciting or fun things that we wanted to do. Many of us kind of suspected that the devil who wanted to do fun things was, simply put, us. But it wasn't really an angel on our shoulder anyway, it turns out. We were meant to think that, of course. It always seemed like an angel to us when it was saying no, because we were taught that only devils and naughty girls said yes. God certainly doesn't say yes, does he ever, to anything nice? Thing is, how were we ever going to love a spouse, a child, dare I say it, God himself, so long as we had an angel of light garb little devil on our shoulder, whispering away, making us unable to reach out in love, to far more mundane good things. I mean, I wanted to go see a movie, go hear people sing the songs they'd written, see if I could like wine and beer at all. Good things like that. Normal things. Life things. Love things. Sanity aids, even. But when nice, non-brethren people who I liked reached out to me and casually invited me to go do mundane, nice things like this, I had a handicap. I had special needs. So I turned them down every time. I didn't believe in my heart for a moment, eventually, that it was wrong to do these good things, but there was that sparkling, Pharisee party-line-spewing, white-robed little harp-playing devil on my shoulder saying, But how is that okay for a Christian? It sounds like it would be really nice and everything, but think of what our God wants for you. A life of failure, sacrifice, service, and endless tedium. You know that. It sounds fun, and isn't wrong in and of itself, but if it's fun, how could it be okay? How could it be in keeping with God's special plan for you? His plan that you be miserable and have a life that doesn't work. To drive that Ferrari of your life into a brick wall for Him. It could be okay for other people, maybe. But not for you, though. You know what you're like. Best to leave that Ferrari in park forever. And other such stuff. I don't know what was being whispered in Peter's ear when he was actually walking on actual water. I can only imagine. You're just doing this to look cool. Jesus doesn't do miracles to satisfy your frivolous whims. You have to think happy thoughts. Happy thoughts. If you get scared, the magic will wear off. You only have enough magic pixie dust for three steps. You're not remembering to think your happiest thoughts. Remember, you're keeping yourself up through your positivity and the strength of your own faith. The only one is going to make you sink is you. God wouldn't help you do this anyway, not really. He's toying with you. He knows what you're like and what you're thinking. You know Jesus, that's for sure. He's going to let you drown, then put a hilarious story in the Bible about how you drown trying to walk on water to teach children about humility. Look, you're sinking. Shocker there. And all this shame and doubt whispering that I was hearing made God, who'd presumably sent this little voice to visit my ear at all times, seem pretty unlovable. He sounded a lot more like me, hating myself, whom God loved, actually. So I had trouble loving the experience of having God in my thoughts. God was just shame, it seemed. There was nothing of love in him apart from not torturing us after death. I wasn't good at loving anyway. If I loved a band, I couldn't even get out the door and hear them play. If I loved a movie, ditto. Too much shame. 
so God was definitely beyond my loving skills. And really, who could love what Joss Whedon refers to as a sky bully of that kind? Not me. He clearly didn't love me, wasn't into happiness, was anti-life and anti-love, anti-joy. Heaven was going to suck. When I started to try to build an actual adult life, time after time, when things fell crashing to the ground, every time I dreamed a dream and it popped like a burst bubble, I had the choice to either A. Take it as sent directly from God as a crap package addressed to me because I was a Christian, and go off and pout, give up on everything, and try to stifle my anger, or else B. I could keep getting back up and keep waiting for a God I could love to show up amid all the chaos and soul-grinding tedium, to wait for the God of the Bible to reach out rather than a purely imagined him with all of my messed-up, shame-addicted, self-loathing psychology stamped all over its purely fictional face. I went with the latter, and he did show up for real. You see, God seems to have taken exception to the former view of imaginary him. He's not the principal in the breakfast club after all. He likes to have fun, too. Invented it, and the capacity, and all the various means for having it, as you know. Invented the clitoris, for example, which serves only one purpose. Also, chocolate. And kittens. Important to invite him along when intending to have fun. He's an excellent wingman. Redemption Yesterday, I went to see Maleficent with an elderly brethren person who hasn't ever really been to the movie theater before, for well-intentioned religious reasons. And we enjoyed it, she and I. The movie is a retelling of Sleeping Beauty. I was very impressed, having started out with low, well, no, expectations, which is what I seem to need to do to enjoy movies lately. It was the 90s, well, the Princess Bride in the 80s, and then moving on, with Spawn and Shrek, and, and then eventually to stuff like Twilight, when writers really started to flip all the hero-villain roles, because the old ones had gotten stale. Suddenly, pirates, Indians, ogres, vampires, and hellspawn might be tormented, misunderstood heroes. And princes, knights, and cowboys might be, well, vengeful, hateful, judgmental, controlling bastards, prodigals, elder brothers. Gasp, gasped many Christian adults. They're muddying and perverting children's stories with what used to be perfectly straightforward, black and white, good and evil morals back in the days when America was white and Christian. They're scheming to make our children grow up to be morally ambivalent. No, I said. They're taking simplistic, one-dimensional stories with evil people who stay evil for no reason and good people who are just good, you know, and infusing them with more nuanced, thought-provoking stuff. Explorations of growth, change, redemption, repentance, forgiveness, grace, mercy, and other evil, unscriptural, anti-Christian stuff like that. But we went to the movie theater, she and I. And the really good part? She and I were finally free to go see that movie yesterday. Wasn't even a big thing. We went to see what the story was and be encouraged to think about bitterness and growth and change and redemption and repentance and all of that. Those little devils dressed as angels seemed to have hopped off our shoulders and buggered off somewhere for the afternoon as they weren't fooling anyone anymore. No point they're even showing up. Of course, I didn't really think there was actually a little angel on my shoulder back in the day. That's just me using descriptive language in a vain attempt to try to help people understand what it was actually like. 
Those demonic ideas, though, were literally coming into my actual ears right out of the mouths of people all dressed up as terribly serious Christians who genuinely thought they had my best interests at heart but were unable to do anything but see fear and evil in every single thing that touched my heart and sparked my imagination. They could miss the good, the fun, the worth, the virtue in anything. Jesus is quite harsh in repeatedly associating the Pharisees and those they converted to their way of thinking with devils, demons, unclean, foul spirits. Years past, these devil words had come into my ear, for example, right out of the mouth of she who sat beside me yesterday and cheered for Angelina Jolie and was all weepy over Brangelina's little daughter having a cameo. Once she would have seen the movie theater as a threat to my spiritual life and meeting reputation. Yesterday, she didn't see evil and harm and disobedient wayward license in going right in there. She saw a movie, a story about love and forgiveness and redemption and she watched it with me. Nowadays, there is nothing short of impugning the name Hey-Ho that could possibly worsen my meeting reputation anyway. Whoops. But we saw that movie, because things change, and fear, superstition, and evil are eventually unmasked and repented of, and relationship, life, and freedom can then come out to play. And we use that freedom mainly because we both got kicked out of our birth culture and had nothing further to fear from it. We were finally free. Sometimes people pray, and that stuff happens, and eventually good makes us feel good instead of ashamed, and bad looks, well, pretty silly, actually, and we laugh and feel good together. So we've gotten to the point where my mother isn't going to tell me that movies are an idol to me, nor ask what Mrs. Hayhoe would say. And that's something I never thought I'd live to see. It was a love thing, and it was delightful. Idols In the Old Testament, God is angry a lot. He keeps trying to be a special friend to the Jewish people, and over and over again they do something that hurts him so much and makes him so angry, he has a temper tantrum and threatens to break up with them, to call them not my people. Growing up, I knew that this something that Israel repeatedly did was almost always something called idolatry, cheating on God. This is why couples break up, infidelity. And as I've said, we were taught what my church felt the modern equivalents of idols were. Oh, there's no one here that would bow down to Buddha. There's no one here who would be deceived by the multiple idols of Hinduism. There's no one here who would have anything to do with the juju gods of Africa. But, beloved young people, I want to ask you a question. Are you happy? Are you happy? If not, I believe the answer lies in this. You, I, somewhere, have accumulated some idols concerning which this verse would solemnly warn us. Anything that took one away from God and meeting in terms of time or affection. So, television, movies, dancing, sports, whatever, stuff that you loved and which you were willing to give affection and time to, the latter of which only God deserves. Those were idols, if you liked them much anyway. Jake tells me that when he was ten, he felt his heart exercised in a very Christian way about an idol he felt he had to give up for God. SpongeBob SquarePants Jake liked SpongeBob too much. 
SpongeBob gave Jake too much joy. Loving SpongeBob was taking love away from God. A better husband, Tim, who is still very much under the influence of a brethren mindset, Louisa writes, My husband struggles with this as he finds great enjoyment and challenge in planning, building, and flying model airplanes. He struggles with if this is merely a worldly pastime that will all be burned up, his part in it, not just the layout itself. I've been encouraged by the grace a couple of meeting brothers in Meeting B have been towards Tim, even told him directly to not burn them all when he has felt like he should. Some of this is a black-and-white frame of mind, and some of it is legalistic comments he hears at conferences. We heard about idols so much, but there was no thought that idolatry could be building up a religious system and worshipping it rather than God. Building a tower to heaven made of a pile of bricks and stained glass or a pile of dusty books or a group of guys or a set of political positions or a pile of doctrines and substituting that man-made stuff for a relationship with God himself, calling that man-made stuff God if anyone questioned it. Because you can raise money and put an addition on a pile of bricks and stained glass because you can dust off your dusty books and tell other people to read them, because you can phone guys in a group, you can trumpet your political positions to the skies shamelessly on social media, you can make up doctrine and write it down, and you can agree to kick people out for saying anything that sounds different from your doctrine. You can define and control an idol you make yourself, because you decide everything about the interaction. It's not like that with God. With God, you are not in the driver's seat. On my blog years ago, I came up with a test for Christians who might be, I thought, exhibiting signs of being idolatrous about their religion. Idolatry Test Idolatry is having a perfectly good God, who is a person, not only an authority figure or moral standard, to worship and have a relationship with, but instead choosing to invent extra crap to focus upon rather than him, codified rules, a specific lifestyle, etc. If you are an idolater, you have chosen to block God out of your life with something else. He hates that worse than a wife who finds a blow-up doll in her husband's closet. You might be an idolater if... You think it's something akin to blasphemy for anyone but you and people you respect to criticize the church you are associated with. Everybody else is an infidel unbeliever who can't possibly understand and should just be quiet. Everyone who is anything less than supportive is an enemy, a potential threat. You might be an idolater if you attend church so people will know you are spiritually okay, and if you don't, will assume you definitely aren't. You attend church not as a natural outflowing of your love for God, but to try to get or maintain some appearance of spirituality by the act of dutiful, regular attendance. You might be an idolater if you collectively come together to worship the fact that you collectively come together to worship the fact that you collectively come together to worship. You come together to sing about coming together to sing about coming together to sing about coming together to sing. You might be an idolater if you feel unsafe without a human-built power structure within which to approach God. A lot of time is being spent by your church folk each week wrestling over matters of power, control, and authority. You worship the church rather than worship in the church. You might be an idolater if you are willing to alter many parts of your life, habits, dress, and time on a daily basis for no other reason than to accommodate the expectations of people in your church, whatever their reasons may be. You serve expectation. You serve impression and image. 
You might be an adulterer if your solution to different people is to feel they'd be happier somewhere else because they don't fit and you don't feel inclined to accommodate them. Rather than make the structure accommodate people who could be helped by it, you treat with suspicion any people who say they aren't being helped by it in its current form. You might be an adulterer if a person's increasing failure to regularly attend church means you think, feel, and act almost as if they were dead or some kind of traitor or deserter. You have no real belief in anyone spending 40 days in the backside of the desert in any form of solitude. They need to report Sunday morning and get singing. You might be an idolater if you aren't willing to seek out your own God-given answers to your own God-given problems, but badly want to be told what to do by others. You deal with the church rather than with God. You might be an idolater if you've built a lovely castle of shoulds that you will neither stop feeling guilty about not achieving nor achieve. Contemplating this castle you've built makes you much happier than the thought of looking at anything real. You focus upon a self who isn't a real thing and will never be one and act like only that self deserves the acceptance of God or the church, the latter being more important to you. You might be an adulterer if you don't know how to feel good about your lifestyle choices unless people at your church feel okay about them. Anything they don't understand is something you are tempted to avoid for their sake. You might be an idolater if you hope that God will bless you based upon what you put into the church and what you sacrifice for it. When you don't benefit from church, don't learn anything at church, or are actually hurt by your church, you assume the problem must lie with you on some level. If you behaved as you should, it would work. You might be an idolater if, if you found out for certain there were actually no God, your Sunday routine would scarcely be altered by this fact at all. You'd still show up and sing the songs. Pleasure Rules seem to exist to try to control pleasure mostly, don't they? People kept telling me that they read The Shack and that it meant a whole lot to them. So I read it. The local Christian bookstore was refusing to stock it, so I bought it at the supermarket. That made me think right there. The Shack is actually a pretty shallow and crappily written book, I think. Yet the embarrassing fact for many of us who have read various books with far deeper and more elegantly told stories or topics is that many of us kind of needed the shack, or at least benefited from it greatly. And maybe that's a bit pathetic, that we got into such a state that we needed the shack to lay hold on something that should have been so simple and so widely grasped. God, God likes, likes us to enjoy ourselves in healthy, appropriate ways, because he loves us like a mother or father does. He likes us to be happy and enjoy ourselves. He likes us to appreciate and love good things even good things like food and friendship, song and fun. In his stand-up comedy, Irish comedian Dylan Moran swearingly says that we need a healthy relationship with pleasure, amusingly and vulgarly arguing that people across the world hate the French because of their unthinkingly accepting approach to pleasure, starting with chocolate bread in the morning and spiraling downhill throughout the day from there. Moran believes that there's something unhealthy and bizarre in us feeling guilt every time we feel desire or pleasure. Dylan Moran was raised Catholic. He talks about how some people, Protestants for instance, can walk into a room, he thinks, and casually see a plate of cookies and eat one and enjoy it. But others, raised like him, see the plate and say, 
As soon as no one's looking, I just know I'm going to walk over and eat every single one. Oh, I'm walking over. The shame, the shame, the shame. I'm eating them. I'm eating them. I can't tell which is nicer, the biscuits or the shame. Nothing could make the shame go away but cocaine. I agree with Dylan Moran that we need to ensure we have a healthy relationship with pleasure. I think anything else makes the Bible, written to people who did not bear the imprint of Puritan upbringing that we do, not work right. Nowadays, it can be used to make worse people filled with pieces of exaggerated, sort of biblical advice that are already being taken too far in the legalistic direction. That Bible verses written to lawless people are being used to shove legalism at everybody and that going farther in that legalistic direction will not remotely resemble wisdom. If you're a husband, and the Bible tells you to love your wife as you love your own body, for her sake I hope you have a healthy attitude to your own body. One troubling epiphany of mine was to eventually come to the harsh realization that we weren't worshipping the God of the New Testament at all. We worshipped a pagan, pleasure-hating idol with a whole pre-Christian system of sacrifice around it, with an altar upon which we could offer daily sacrifices of what would otherwise have been fun for us. So some of us needed to read The Shack, that Nancy Drew fan fiction written on ecstasy and cheap wine work that basically has that one extremely already fully conveyed in scripture but somehow missed by apparently all of us point. God likes you. Period. He wants you to be happy. Stick with him, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not just his heart, yours. Really. He's not out to get you. He's not vigilant to catch you, enjoying too much pleasure. It's going to be a ride. Strap in. There will be scary bits, but it's going to be amazing. He calls it life. Love will be piped into the cabin throughout the journey, and laughter will be served. Apparently, there are really no substitutes for all of that. Nothing's as good. Not even abstinences and feeling more righteous than the person in the plane next to you. And none of it will need to be paid for in the dubious coin of self or church-inflicted shame. Higher standards than rule-following? I guess I set myself a pretty high standard for doing things actually for God and not for other reasons back in my teens and twenties. The minimum evidence of loyalty to God at our meeting was showing up every Sunday morning. If you missed a Sunday or two every couple of months, this was a clear sign that you were not committed to God. If you wanted to help out or speak up in meeting or be taken seriously at all there, you needed to show up at all five meetings a week with your carefully stifled infant children and your decently dressed tidy teenagers. Now, it didn't escape my adolescent notice that some people were taking any and all absences from the rest of us so personally that one had to conclude that people clearly took poor attendance as a sign of being disloyal to them rather than to God, which is why they showed such pained disapproval. They took absences as a personal affront. And they took attendance in their heads and took their revenge on many. Snide comments. Mock passive-aggressive concern, social status is getting slashed, reputation assassination. I increasingly had trouble showing up at meeting. For one thing, the men there had really done a number on my father, which made it hard to sit and be taught by people who demonstrated such a lack of love, tolerance, forgiveness, compassion, and certainly integrity. Then there was the division that we went through. For another thing, if my attendant suffered 
or if I went to the movie theater to see Star Trek VI, I knew that though their words purported to express loving concern and worry, that really their tone of voice and treatment of me clearly showed wounded feelings of betrayal and disdain, dismissiveness, disgust, also a slight hint of triumph. They attended, I didn't, so they won. And they started shunning me and my meeting friends from other assemblies well in advance of any official sanction. By the time they gave me paperwork informing me of worldwide shunning, I'd been shunned for my entire twenties already. It wasn't a change. It wasn't like they'd been working with me, had tried everything, and had eventually consigned me to Satan for destruction of the flesh afterward. They'd thrown me out of the bus at the first sign of me not being one of us and bided their time until they could get enough in their files to kick me out. And yes, they alluded to a literal file being kept on me. When I asked for the offending parody tract I'd written so that I could destroy it, it was very hurriedly tucked back inside a suit coat pocket to keep it from me so it could go right back in the file they kept on me. To this day... When I blog things, people often print them out and deliver them to people most likely to be angered by them, people who keep an outrage collection on all of us. I had been asked not to attend various youth group things right through my 20s. Some of my peers were forbidden to ride in my car, as I might well play rock and roll in there, or worse yet, talk about the Bible. That was something no young person was supposed to do without older people around to keep heresy at bay and tell us all the right answers. I was told this in just those words more than once. We needed to have old people around to tell us the right answers. I participated in a couple of informal Bible discussions anyway in my 20s, mostly when visiting brethren friends were here and wanted to do that. We were forbidden to do that in the meeting hall or at the home of anyone in meeting, my family and relatives included. I asked... And the local youth boycotted said Bible discussions as they'd been told to. Only friends visiting from assemblies from out of region attended and took part. Despite how sidelined I already was and my belief that the Brethren lifestyle didn't work, I still somehow lived in terror of what the gathered saints would think of me, feared worsening my status somehow, worried about what they would do to me next. So I tried to attend, despite it ripping my conscience to shreds to do it. I walked in, feeling like I wore a crown of crap they'd given me, but I lived in anguish at the thought of anything worse happening. And of course, it eventually did. They eventually made it official and stripped me of the right to attend any meeting social functions anywhere on the planet, refusing to meet with me to discuss that or anything else ever since. It got to the point where my best brethren friends asked me if I'd mind not attending their wedding reception so their parents and uncles and aunts would be willing to attend. But back when I was trying to attend still, so I wouldn't lose my seat in that vicious game of ecclesiastical musical chairs, it made me realize that I was afraid to miss meetings because of the social consequences, that it wasn't really about God at all. There was a very clear pecking order, a social status system, just like in high school. There was an inner circle of cool kids, and there were people who were on the fringes. We all paid for us status by submitting to being socially punished for any and all missteps in brethren practice, especially in the inner circle I'd been raised to aspire to, and I was feeling that. My father had been consigned to the fringes, and I was shoved out there too. We'd been judged to be oddballs who didn't get assembly living. There was no long-suffering attitude to people being different. 
All of this was what made me so tempted to unthinkingly do whatever the meeting folk wanted, whether they admitted wanting it or not, just so they'd not disrespect or socially punish me more. But my conscience had a problem with that. I realized that showing up Sunday for some Jesus-related reason, and showing up Sunday to avoid Mr. and Mrs. Jones's disapproval, were very different things. I was aware that it would be pretty hard to tell looking on what my reasons for showing up were, but that really didn't matter to me. I knew that God knew, and I was determined not to earn social status by fakery. I was determined not to alleviate the intense social pressure through pretend piety, and despite an awareness that the entire culture was one of competitive shows of piety, I felt it would be wrong to play that game anymore. I couldn't really do it, eventually. It felt utterly unnatural to pretend things. So I woke up hundreds of Sunday mornings in my 20s, determined to go out to a Sunday morning meeting and simply could not make myself go. Eventually, perhaps one out of every three meetings, I got afraid enough to show up, and so I did. There was an emotional and spiritual price to be paid each time I showed up, of course, but I paid it. A lot of it was about the fear of anyone being able to say I'd not been out for a whole month, so I made sure I dragged my bedraggled, wide-eyed self in there at least once or twice a month to keep my membership open as long as I could. I managed that for the last few years before they kicked me to the curb. Now, I don't think God has ever spoken to me in a voice. I do think, though, that occasionally whole thoughts in sentences have come into my head, and I think they were created in my head because I was trying to hear God. This one time, I'd been missing Sunday mornings in Ottawa quite a bit. I managed to convince myself that I was going to go out and that it was for God and not men, and I came walking in a bit late, a bit shaken by the wrestlings with myself over this matter. I looked around, getting no eye contact, and sat down. And I said to God in my heart, I'm here for you. I hope it's okay that it's been weeks. And the sentence that formed in my head, perhaps helped along by him, was simply, Don't even pretend you are here because of me. That rang true. And I started to suspect maybe he didn't even want me to attend there at all. It wasn't good. I felt like he didn't like me pretending my showing up was for any reason other than fear of getting kicked out of a place I had a tortured conscience about to begin with. The worse it got at my assembly, and the fewer people I could talk to who seemed to be aware of anything more Christ-related than the piety game of maintaining social status, and the more time passed, the less I could believe God wanted me there at all. He seemed completely disinterested in my showing up there, and just as disinterested in my finding a different church to go to. This is not how I was told God would behave. What to do? I had to go out. I have since come to believe that Christians are to love one another. I tend to think that connecting to one another is an important part of that. What I was doing didn't seem worth it. I was showing up at meeting just enough to not lose my membership. While there, I was pretending, as many others were, that I was the only one in the room as I worshipped. Then I was leaving after meeting was over without anyone letting me in to any kind of genuine conversation. After a while, it didn't seem Christian at all. It had nothing to do with Christ. There was certainly no love in it. But I showed up a couple of times a month despite God, even after I'd been kicked out. I tried to make human connections with the Christian people, thinking that human connections were less lofty a goal than anything more divine, but still worth doing. And I failed over and over again. 
It was all fake. I couldn't get anyone to say a word to me that I could believe. Nothing I said to them got any kind of a sincere response, and my standards for sincere were through the floor at this point in time. They just wanted me to move on by then, become an atheist or Baptist or whatever. There is something that brethren people have said to me over and over again, right along with, just Just pretend pretend there's there's no one else in the room, room, just just you you and God, God, that's what it's it's all about. about. Here's when I heard it. Sometimes I was frank with the mental attendance takers about having trouble showing up. And they said this, If I could choose the church of my choice to attend, I certainly wouldn't choose this one. There are so many other churches with nicer people, with better singing, better conversation, lovely music accompaniment, and all the rest. But God chose this one, and I honor that. I do not question his will for me. This place wouldn't be my first choice, I can tell you. But we feel the Lord's mind in our coming here. And so here we are. Division author Wim van Hofwegen said that to me after the first division and right before the next one he helmed several times, emphasizing just how odd it really was that he was associated with this group of people. He certainly didn't enjoy any of these people, he was broadly hinting, no more than I did. It was to be our sacrifice for God. And it wasn't easy. I mean, just look at them. We stood there together at the back of the meeting hall and looked at them. And I heard the same thing from so many others. They didn't really seem to like each other much, weren't hanging out outside of meeting at all, really. Before the division, there had been some people to choose from as to social things. But now, there were just these few people. They presented it as a noble sacrifice to go there, one they were obedient and wise to make. They were trying to connect with me briefly about how they couldn't connect to anyone either, but still felt they had to attend. It was the one place, after all. They were letting me know, with the most kindness I ever saw from them, that they weren't getting anything much out of being there either, but that they believed they had to show up for for God and to be right, to keep meeting going, for swearing more fun church worship services in favor of the meeting grind. Because that's how a lot of people seem to view it. Friendship was fleeting and frivolous, and fun was downright bad, so there was inherent worth in sacrificing them for God. One lit candle, one shaft of sunlight shining through a stained glass window, one stirring chord on an organ, one anything that you felt Sunday morning, and you were off scriptural ground pleasing self. And then clearly it wasn't about God anymore. No, it was about you. And you were a sensualist and perhaps an idolater. Look at the Catholics kissing and bowing down and praying to the wooden statues and crosses. Pharisees, the lot of them. Well, rumor had it there might be a few Catholics in heaven one day. You never knew. As I've said, the assumption was that if you were happy about what you did Sunday or in general, God wasn't. More troublingly, the assumption was that if you killed happy, only then could God be happy. What kind of God were we worshipping anyway Sunday mornings? This concept of a God who is only pleased by our boredom and sacrifice is a ridiculous idea. But I had to get pretty grown up before I even started to figure out that this idea that one pleased God by displeasing oneself was a pretty dubious one. Kung Fu for Handling Pharisees If you grew up or became an integral part of a system which is pharisaical, you're maybe going to need to give some thought about how to handle yourself when disengaging from it a bit. They don't let go easy. Expect attacks, ones that hurt you on a psychological, social, 
and spiritual level, ones you've been raised to be vulnerable to, ones which exploit weaknesses that were built into you. Maybe you won't have to worry about any of this. As for me, though, I had to put up with continual checks to see if I could be shamed back into line, and also with constant transparent and unsubtle dominance and control tactics. It was as if my simply walking around with liberty in the same room as the rest was some kind of threat. I didn't look as cowed as they wanted. I wasn't as susceptible to the old control moves. The shame was starting to slide off me instead of sticking when tossed on me. And this attracted a great deal of a certain kind of concerned attention. It made me a target. Youth is generally the main target of legalism, and I was young. A lot more shame moves got pulled on me. By the standards of who I am now, I wasn't terribly free, certainly not from guilt and fear. But by the standards of that room, I was a wild man. I was freer than free. I was V and V for Vendetta, cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. Who knew what I'd do? Probably blow the place sky high, bring it down around everyone's ears with the power of my deranged, unnaturally active mind. You might be aware of the story in the Old Testament of the Ephraimite Israelites having lost a battle against Gilead and trying to get back across a river home to safety by pretending to be Gileadites. To catch them, the Gileadites were having all strangers say the word shibboleth, which means river or stream, to see if they said it with a funny Ephraimite accent. If they said sibboleth, as if they had a lisp, this identified them as Ephraimite refugees, and they were duly hacked to bits. Wikipedia says, A shibboleth, in its original signification, and in a meaning it still bears today, is a word or custom whose variations in pronunciation or style can be used to differentiate members of in-groups from those of out-groups. Within the mindset of the in-group, a connotation or value judgment of correct or incorrect or superior or inferior can be ascribed to the two variants. As explained by Charlie Sheen's father in an utterly un-Star Wars-related episode of The West Wing entitled Han, in modern parlance, the word shibboleth is used to mean a membership test, a password. I never knew how many passwords and bits of jargon and expected responses we really had in my culture until people started testing me to see if I was us or them. A big one was frequently deployed on Sunday morning, which I had to call Lord's Day morning, or I would reveal my them rather than us status immediately. To employ the shibboleth, they would say something like, There are so many other places we could find ourselves this Lord's Day morning. Isn't it wonderful, though, to know that we have been gathered by the Holy Spirit to the place he would have us be, with the Lord in our very midst among those gathered to his precious name, rather than simply going out and attending the church of our choice like so many with their worldly music and modern entertainment? Now, clearly, the correct password to this particular shibboleth was something along the lines of yes, yes, with more Victorian phrasing appreciated, but not mandatory. I kept getting shibboleth every time I showed up at church, over and over. Wasn't it great to be the only right place? Wasn't it a shame about what gays were up to? Didn't the shack sound horribly blasphemous and dangerous, though, of course, we'd never read it? Wasn't climate change such a fraudulent lie? Was I going to be us and respond appropriately, or was I still them, foreign, and no doubt contaminating to all? Was I going to avoid words like church and Sunday and so on? Or was I going to flaunt my freedom from all of that and simply say words like church and Sunday? My response to shibboleths like the above one right place test started to be things like, 
The Lord not being in the midst of the other Christian groups this morning is pretty important to you, isn't it? Why do you think that is? Password fail. Even though I didn't say church or Sunday. Several people turned on their heels and walked straight away from that response without comment. I can't remember a single person who tossed me that shibboleth then being willing to say another word to me after they got that kind of response to their membership test. They just walked away every time. The other thing I had to endure, once I'd inwardly moved on from the thinking I'd been raised with, was being firmly but subtly reminded of exactly where I ranked in the status game, in the piety competition. This was both an attempt to reaffirm my low place and use shame to get me to fall back in line to start earning again. So someone would come up and say, haven't seen you out for a while, or that's quite the outfit you've got there, or we've been worried about you in just such a way to make it impossible to take these statements as anything other than the Christian equivalent of alpha male chimps beating up and even dry humping beta male chimps to remind the betas that they were betas and lesser than the alphas who get to be alphas by dominating betas to begin with. It was mean girls only at meeting. Betas know who's alpha by knowing whose crap they can be forced to put up with. I think in most cases, the meeting people weren't really 100% conscious of what they were doing. They were venting some discomfort over the fact that there was a me in the room. I certainly wasn't the only one to get treated this way, though. It went on all the time to so many. But often, dominance was what was going on, establishing pecking order, reminding people they were slipping down the ladder, being ever watchful against outside influence and impurity. Of course, every now and then, someone would say something to my friends or me along the lines of, haven't seen you for a while, we're worried about you, and actually mean it. And you could really tell the difference. You could feel it immediately. But many were less benign, and some were more direct than their brethren. They would say things like, I don't understand how you can claim to love the Lord, but then not be willing to present yourself each Lord's Day morning to honor his dying request. Or, I don't know how you can have a beard and still feel you're being a good Christian testimony to anyone. I suppose a better man than I would have been able to simply give no real response at all to these kinds of comments. That was beyond me in my twenties, apparently. It felt beneath me, however, giving back similar stuff. Saying, true, it is obvious that you don't understand. Or, I don't know how you can still feel that you're being a good Christian testimony to anyone with those psychological problems seemed weak. As with simply telling them to f*** off, which was basically what they were saying to me in traditional Pharisees. So I paid close attention to how Jesus dealt with Pharisees, who acted in a very similar fashion towards him, as many of our culture dealt towards my friends and me. My favorite approach used by our Lord was to cut to the chase, so to speak. In one instance, the Pharisees are asking him to justify his beliefs with twisty traps of questions, hoping to ensnare him so they can stone him or throw him off something. Sometimes Jesus had answered their contrived trap questions with genuine questions, which tactic I highly recommend. But in this one instance, though, without bothering to in any way respond to their stated question, he simply flat out asks them, why do you seek to kill me? They cannot deal with that, cannot deny the bald truth of what he is assuming. So they flee the scene, muttering things about him being crazy, but knowing better than to stick around and try to engage him more and risk being asked anything else that was a bit too true. Of course, to this day, Christians still contact me to judge me, like it's their job. I have recently had to ask a missionary who reached out to judge me why he was doing it. After all, he'd gone to great lengths upon reaching Africa to find Wi-Fi just so he could enumerate my sins to me. Instead of, why are you seeking to kill me? 
I just asked, why are you judging me? I just kept asking him why and didn't defend myself at all, no matter what he said. I tried in the whole thing to be quiet and mild, kindly, but direct and firm. Apparently, he'd not given this question any thought. To begin with, he denied judging me, despite everything he'd said about my character, and kept doing what he'd been doing. I didn't respond to his judgment to try to justify myself, but simply repeatedly asked him why he was doing it. I asked if he was confident he was serving the Lord by judging me, as part of his general service for him, or was he judging me purely recreationally, I asked, because I wanted to know. But he wouldn't answer that. And I noticed something. He kept quoting bits of Bible verses at me, scraps of them. And just like a Jehovah's Witness at your door who you try to start a real Bible conversation with, he kept changing topic whenever I said anything related to said verses at all. He just kept lobbing new scripture shards at me. And if I got out my tennis racket and returned his serve, he'd just sidestep that and throw more handfuls of different scripture scraps my way rather than have a proper game or discussion. He wouldn't get into the verses. He'd just toss them. And then I noticed something else that was quite a bit more interesting. He could quote bits of scripture, but not only could he not discuss scripture, he could not discuss the Lord at all. I mean, he couldn't really discuss anything, but could only accuse and judge. That was obvious. But the Lord, the one he was in Africa to teach people about, couldn't even really respond on that topic. So I kept talking about Jesus, which kept sending him scurrying back into more accusations and personal attacks. It was quite a thing. I'd quote it here to show what I'm talking about, but I don't wish to do that thing to that guy. He's doing missionary work and stuff. This other guy, though, I'll quote directly with his name changed. I think the flavor of what is said by these people with this kind of spirit is important to see directly. A few months back, I linked a Brethren discussion group to a story about a Christian guy named Randall Herman who made Kill the Faggot, a first-person shooter game which involves earning points by shooting unarmed gays and transsexuals as they flee the Christian shooter. Potential targets identify themselves by saying things like, I want a wiener in my butt, as they run down the street past the player's crosshairs, and by talking in a voice very similar to Snagglepuss. Most Brethren commenters were quick to express their utter horror at a person who called himself a Christian creating such a thing. But the predicted lunatic fringe element stepped up mad-eyed to object to us going light on sin in what are clearly the days of Lot, and reminding us that one day God would judge sin and so on. Not the sin of Mr. Herman taking the Lord's name in vain, as Laura put it, by associating with recreationally role-playing the killing of other human beings for being gay. No, the sin of thinking such a game repugnant instead of applauding it as the effort of someone on our side. To not support the game was, of course, disloyal, siding with the world. I commented, asking one such man for clarification as to his lengthy, passionate but garbled content, and not willing to argue with me in public, this Facebook Messenger exchange that he initiated duly ensued. Mr. Mike Moore, you would have done much better to have liked my comment. It is an effort for someone who does not type well. Please, I hope you don't go through the countryside singing about the will of God sporting long hair. A sham and a shame on you, sir. First Corinthians 11.14 Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? Are you judging me? The scripture judge you, sir. Why not leave me to work that out with the scripture then? 
who art thou that judges another man's servant? It is a very small thing if I am judged of you. He that is spiritual judges all things. When you are openly rebellious, that tells me you have very little discernment. Are you judging my level of discernment? Yes. Why? Have you the Lord's mind in so doing this evening? Because you need to be rebuked. If you go about the country singing for the Lord, you with long hair, and the girl with short hair, a complete disgrace and a dishonor to the Lord Jesus, the Christ. Donald Duncan, I do hereby rebuke you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, of course, got rid of him. I was tempted, actually, to say the power of Christ compels you. After that, he simply went and put oddly mocking comments on YouTube videos of mine, calling me a narcissist, saying I need Jesus and to be born again. He'd apparently seen a video of me singing with Danielle, who has short hair. No doubt his display of the perfect love of God will lead her to one day know the Lord. What works for me is refusing to defend myself, making them say what they're doing and why, mentioning the Lord, talking to them like they're at the therapist's, being calmer and warmer than they can be. Not being bound under christian law is seen by many as nothing short of open rebellion against God and His Word. In my experience, Christians don't tell me to go to hell, they just tell me I'm obviously headed there. And needless to say, the month that same-sex marriage got legalized or whatever they did with it in the United States, my Facebook feed suddenly lit up in profile pictures all the shades of the rainbow and posts with contrastingly black and white thinking like, Think of all the lives we could save if we obeyed Christ and executed these vile creatures. Do you remember the story in the gospel where Jesus said to kill sinners? Because I don't. General Kung Fu Pointers I don't know if, like me, you'll have to put up with constant crap from random Christians who seem to be waiting in line to tell you what's wrong with you, but if you do, I guess I can recommend the following. Not that I can claim to have done all of these very well. Refuse to be them. Keep saying us and we when they say you or people like you. When they are personal, don't respond as a unique case, as the exception. Respond as another similar person to them and everyone else. Someone so typical as to not require explanation or justification. Express surprise that anything about you is odd to them. After all, you're just a normal guy. You're like everyone else. Because you are. Don't respond as them. Talk as if you are the same sort of being as they are and as much us as they are. Refuse to defend yourself at all, even a little bit. They have no idea what to do with that. Their intent, often, is to force you into a defensive posture so as to wail on you. Refuse to take a defensive posture. Refuse to defend yourself at all. It makes it very difficult for them to attack you when you won't. It's called turning the other cheek. Do it. Refuse to attack them. Just as your defensiveness would give them evidence of guilt and of their right to judge you, attacking them gives them carte blanche to fight back. Dirty. So be nice. Failing that, be calm and civil. Be calmly, civilly, quietly, direct, simple, concise. No sarcasm, no fancy vocabulary, no sneer, no evasiveness, nothing terribly mentally challenging. Remember who you're talking to, but talk about what's going on. 
without accusing them, even if they're not admitting what's going on. You don't need them to admit anything. Answer what they mean to imply, not only what they admit to. If you hear something implied, don't waste time trying to get them to admit to it or say it directly. Just respond as if they'd said it directly. You heard it, and when they deny saying it, continue. Be open. There is no safety to be gained in being guarded. What is almost certain is that this person can't be open, can't connect. So do that, and they won't be able to reciprocate and will likely just embarrass themselves. Talk about the Lord. They don't seem to be able to deal with that. They are determined to talk about you. Be genuinely affectionate and kind. Ask if things are going okay for them lately. Return good for evil, acceptance for rejection, support for judgment, and love for spite. They will likely need to excuse themselves from the conversation because, again, they won't be able to participate in such an interaction. The person judging, criticizing, shibboleth-ing, or shaming you has ostensibly started what is being presented to you as a conversation, relating, connecting. But in cases like this, usually the person troubling you isn't going to be able to genuinely do any of that. So you have to do it. Do it, and you will both find out if they can do it too. Make sure they have to leave the conversation rather than you. Outlast them. Turn the other cheek. Keep offering more than they want. Do not leave the conversation before they do. If you are being offered the loan of a book or video or a link or something like that, thank them. Accept it. Offer no criticism of it at any point. You don't have to actually read it or watch it or whatever. Yes, they are trying to adjust you back normal, but don't return correction for correction. Thank them and continue to be yourself, unchanged. Worse yet, lend them something in return, something you think would genuinely help them. And if they attack it, do not defend it. Take the warmth and friendliness up a notch. Part of that can-you-really-connect thing can involve tossing them more intimacy and connection than they are comfortable with. Say... It sounds like you have more to say on this subject. I want to hear what's on your mind. Why don't you let me take you out for dinner so you can tell me more? If what they were doing is really a push-away move, then step up the level of closeness. Step in. If they criticize you online, offer to speak by phone or in person. If they say something from partway across the room, walk right up to them and see how the conversation goes from there. Touch their elbow, shake their hand, smile, give eye contact, give compliments. Make it very hard for them to feel good about being cold, distant, and slimy. It's not actually that hard to refuse to play ball, to refuse to fight with them. It can be exhilarating to be able to handle something that's intended to destroy you. Don't be surprised if people accuse you of heaping coals of fire on their head. But that's scriptural and fun.